All right, we're going to be in um, Mark chapter 6. And forgive me, we have about a thousand verses to read tonight. But we're going to be able to do this together. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read a couple, and then we're going to skip to um, verse 30. So take a deep breath as we dive into the word of the Lord. Now King Herod heard of him, speaking of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded, he has been raised from the dead. We're going to skip to verse 30. Um, For your own study, you can go back and read those verses in between. It's all about how Herod killed John the Baptist, if you want that. I encourage you to do that on your own. Verse 30, everybody with me? Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. All the parents in the room say amen to that. (laughs) So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was far from spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away and they may go into the surrounding country and villages to buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And then when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them to make them all sit in in groups on the grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish. And now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Take a deep breath. Verse 45. Immediately he began, or immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they, were, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. 
And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Thankful for that time of worship, God. Thankful for a moment to just stop and praise you for who you are. To lift your name on high, to exalt you above our lives, to exalt you above everything we know, and say thank you for your presence in our lives. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you that you, get to, that you speak to us, God. How undeserving are we that the God of the universe would decide to invade our space in this moment right now and speak to us as we are. God, we confess that we're sinners, unworthy of your grace, but we are excited to hear what you have to say tonight. We're your servants and we're ready to do as what you, what you call us to do. So show us, Lord, the areas in our lives that we need to give to you and show us the areas that you are calling us into deeper discipleship to you. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 400 AD, St. Augustine wrote in his book, The Confessions, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? He continued and prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Being aware of ourselves and our own identity and also our relationship with God are very much connected. In the Bible, we see this kind of terminology when it says we are called to shed off our old selves and put on the new self in order to live authentically to who Christ has called us to be. Paul the Apostle says that we are, we, he goes as far to say, we are to put off our old self and put on the self created to be like God in true righteousness. Throughout our discipleship to Jesus, which is a journey, we are discovering who God intended us to be, right? We're discovering his original purpose. We're discovering who, what he wants for you and for me in our lives. And in other words, we are on a journey to discover our identity in this new life in Jesus Christ. Probably the most asked question from a young believer besides who am I supposed to marry is what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I called to? What does, now that I've entered into this relationship with Jesus, what is he calling me to do with my life? Oftentimes, we desire to be unique, we desire to be authentic, and we desire to understand our identity as it is in Christ. And as we know, our true self in Christ is the only self that will support authenticity. It and it alone provides identity that is eternal because it's in Jesus Christ. The problem is that we live in a world where the three enemies of the spiritual life, the adversary, the flesh, and the world are all fighting to tempt us into finding our identity in things other than God himself. The adversary or the deceiver plants in us deceptive ideas that cause us to think of what we should be or what our identity should be rooted in that are not according to what God desires. Our flesh brings up from within us uh, disordered desires that pull us away from the heavenly desires we are called to have. And then the world, on top of that, places us in a sinful society that not only encourages these deceptive ideas and disordered, um, disordered desires, but actually encourages it. 
We face temptations daily to live in identities that are not what God actually intended us to be as Christians and not who God created you and I to be. God is not in the business of making cookie-cutter Christians. He's in the business of making you exactly what he intended when he formed and shaped you in your mother's womb. He's in the business of causing us to live in an identity that is so soaked with Jesus Christ that we become what he intended. But the problem is we live in that society, in that world, and under the deceptive ideas of the adversary. And oftentimes, even us as good Christians, Christians who love the Lord and are here on a Thursday night, dig deeper, we're ready for more, even us can sometimes get caught up in the deceptive ideas that call us into different identities. Pete Scazzaro, who is a pastor and authored an amazing book on spiritual transformation called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says there are three main temptations that the enemies of our true, our new true life tempt us with to cause us to live in a life that Christ did not purpose us to live in from the beginning. Temptation number one is I am what I do or I am what my performance is. When you're at a party or you're meeting somebody for the first time, probably one of the first five introductory questions that we get in our society is, okay, so what do you do, right? And I honestly don't hate that question. I actually have a hard time like separating our vocation and our calling from who we are as people, because oftentimes what we're doing is a reflection of who we are as people, right? You get what I'm saying? But what often happens is we don't necessarily answer with, this is my calling. What we answer with is a resume or a list of successes or a list of achievements that we have. We live in a world that, that puts great effort on the achievements that you can have as a person. And what ends up happening is when we start living in an identity of what we can achieve, we are tempted to think that what we do or our, our achievements is what defines our worth and our identity. The second temptation is I am what I have, possessions. Marketers spend billions of dollars every year tempting us to believe that if we have this much in the bank or this big of a house or this, retire this retirement plan or this body or this partner or this many followers or this iPhone or whatever, that is when you'll find true happiness. And when we fall into that lie, when we fall into the thought that I, I am what I have, what ends up happening is we are always looking for the next thing that's going to bring us worth. And we never actually get there. Newsflash, in case you were wondering. I'm a sucker for, like, YouTube ads and stuff like that, you know, because YouTube knows me so well. That algorithm is the real deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, it knows what I like. It just pops it up. I'm looking for a backpack. It's there. So annoying, right? <laughs> temptation number three, okay, you with me? So, so temptation number one is I am what I do. We're based on achievement and performance. Temptation number two, I am what I have, our possessions. Temptation number three, I am what others think. Some of us in this room are so addicted to what people think that whenever we walk into a room, our first thoughts go to what people are perceiving about us. Our worth comes from the opinions of others, and when we're elevated, when we're viewed with, our, with that we're worthy or that we have something to offer, when we're honored, our identity and worth soars. But when we're invisible, when we're ignored, when we're disregarded, we fall and our worth crashes to the ground. 
Jesus was no stranger to these same temptations that we face. In the passage that we just read, and last week's actually, that Pastor Brandon spoke on, we see that people really did not get what Jesus was doing. They didn't get who he was and what his identity was. People around him thought that he was Elijah. Others said he was John the Baptist. Some agreed that he was a prophet, but thought he was just one of the prophets. Others, in the midst of great terror, thought he was a ghost, even though they had spent years with him already. And in, uh, in last week, we saw even the town that Jesus grew up in only thought of him as Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. How did Jesus stay rooted in his identity in the midst of all the confusion and temptations that surrounded him? How did Jesus stay rooted in what he was called to do and who he was intended to be in the midst of all the confusions? And how in the midst of a world that attempts to pull our identity farther from heaven and closer to earth, can we stay rooted in the new creation of our new self? In this passage that we read, I see a couple things from these miracles that Jesus did in the midst of the confusion that point out where his identity was rooted in and how he lived that out. And I think that if we walk through this together, through this, um, this chapter in Mark, we'll be able to see concrete things that help us stay rooted in our identity as believers in Jesus Christ in the midst of the temptations that we face. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. So where or in what did Jesus root his identity? Twice in this pas passage, something really special happens that I think is a window into the life of Jesus and into where he rooted his identity. In two times, Jesus, we see Jesus retreating into a deserted place to be quiet with the Lord. Once in verse 31, he's going to take his disciples with him. And then also in verse 46, when he's going by himself. Throughout the Gospels, there is a place that Jesus goes to pray. And that place in Greek is called the Eremos. It's the same word that we just read in verse 31. Eremos doesn't just mean a desert. So when we think of this word, it's not just what we have outside. It's the, it can be translated the lonely place. It can be translated the desolate place. Or it can also be translated the quiet place. Often, we see Jesus retreat into the Eremos to be quiet with God. This was a continual theme in the life of Jesus. He would do it with his disciples sometimes, but other times he would do it alone. And constantly, we see Jesus respond to the great successes of his ministry. And let me tell you, Jesus was successful when it comes to our standards of ministry, right? He responds to the great successes of his own ministry and the ministry of his disciples by going back into the quiet place. What do we see from the self-identity of Jesus, from his constant retreating into the quiet place to pray with God? We see that Jesus' identity was founded in his intimate knowing of God. Jesus' identity was rooted in his deep and intimate knowing of God. Now the phrase knowing of God has almost become a cliche in our Christian culture. In our context, oftentimes we equate knowing God to knowing a bunch of facts about him. What ends up happening is because we feel like we can list off some of his names and list off some of his attributes, that's the same thing as knowing God. But that's not how this works. Knowing God on a personal level is a lot different than knowing facts about God. 
What ends up happening is when we get confused and we begin to live a life where we're just focused on intellectual facts, knowing about God, rather than a personal experience, intimate knowing of God, we live an inauthentic Christianity. Either one, we are totally faking our relationship with God and we have nothing really to build on, or two, we're living off of somebody else's spiritual walk. Everything that we hear from somebody else, maybe your favorite pastor that you listen to on the internet or whatever, whatever they're saying is what you're going through and what you believe. You know what I'm saying? That's not an authentic Christianity. That's not you experiencing God for yourself. J.I. Packer was quoted as saying, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Jesus didn't just know about God. He knew God personally and was committed to constantly seeking him out in his life. In another book, um, one author says it like this, transformational knowing of God comes, through, comes from the intimate, personal knowing of divine love. Because God is love, God can only be known through love. To know God is to love God, and to love God is to know God. The Christian God is known only in devotion, not objective detachment. This is why Paul's prayer is that we may know the love of Christ and be filled with the utter fullness of God. Jesus' identity was rooted in his intimate knowledge of the Father, not just an intellectual knowledge, but a personal experience knowledge, one that was so deep that he continually retreated into a place where he could meet God face to face. And that love that poured out of him in his ministry was out of the abundance of love he shared with the Father. Even though his quiet time in the first beginning of, this, beginning of this chapter was interrupted by his compassion for people, he went straight back to the quiet place. Remember our three temptations, all right? I am what I do, I am what people think about me, or I am what I have. And let's look at how Jesus responds to those temptations. Temptation one is I am what I do, performance-based identity. Jesus was who he loved, and he loved God. His identity was firmly rooted in a loving knowledge of his heavenly Father. I have to ask tonight, before we move on, do you know God that way? Do you know God in a way that you are accustomed to retreating into a quiet place in your life to meet him face to face? I'm one of those crazy Christians that actually thinks, you know, you can hear the voice of God once in a while. You know what I'm saying? And um, maybe you can call me a mystic, but I think that. You know what I'm saying? And it's not like this audible voice that just appears out of nowhere. It's ideas that are placed in my head that I know are not from me. You know what I'm saying? Right? I believe God does that today. I believe there's a God who speaks. I believe that he's spoken to this universe and he can speak to you and to me on a daily basis. Is our identity rooted in that knowing, a knowing so deep and intimate that we know the sound of our master's voice? It's out of this abundant, loving knowledge of God that Jesus poured out his calling and his calling to be the good shepherd. Let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. If this isn't underlined in your Bible or highlighted, I really encourage you to do this. This is such an amazing verse in the midst of this beautiful miracle. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. I'm sure most of you know this, but 
the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is, um, that is in all four Gospels, right? And it sets forth Jesus as a man of great compassion for human needs, as a supplier of such needs, even when ordinary resources are insufficient. And it also emphasizes the authority of Jesus in the natural world. But also, it would seem that all the gospel writers thought that this miracle was a preview to the institution of the Lord's Supper and the future messianic banquet when the kingdom was fully established. Jesus is, Jesus is the image of God's love for humanity. And what we see in this amazing miracle is that he is concerned with the basic needs of our lives, right? He's concerned. He has great compassion for the people that are here to listen to him and all people who are in need. This miracle, we not only see his loving compassion for the physical needs of people, but almost a nod to the future, a nod to the greatest act of love in the history of life itself, his death on the cross. Jesus' identity was rooted in the fact that he loved people. I know this is simple. Jesus' identity was rooted in the fact that he loved people, and this was the defining element of his ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's any confusion tonight on the gospel and what is the core of it, it is the core of the gospel is that Jesus loves you. Right? The core of the gospel is not that there's an angry God in the heaven and he wants to strike you down, but just because he decided not to, he's going to send his innocent son anyway. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God loved you and sought after you and came to you and me, even though we never deserved it. And the love of God is what caused Jesus... The love of God is what caused Jesus to come in the form of humanity and accept the, the sacrifice that was before him. Jesus' identity was rooted in his love for people, and he understood that love in his calling to be the shepherd. Now, as I was reading this, and as I was reading, you know, he, he looked at them, and they were, uh, they were sheep without a shepherd. I just thought of Psalms 23, you know? I know this is a well-known psalm, and I just thought about, man, that's Jesus. He is the shepherd that causes us to lack nothing. He is the shepherd that makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us besides quiet waters. He is the shepherd who refreshes our soul and guides us along the paths of righteousness. He is the shepherd whose rod and staff comfort us and he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He is the shepherd who anoints our heads with oil and causes our cups to overflow and his goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in his house forever. This is the shepherd Jesus. Temptation number two is, I, ha I am what I have, possessions. Jesus didn't get caught up in what he had. Some will try to tell you he had a lot. He didn't have much. Jesus didn't get caught up in what he had. His identity was in who he served. His identity was rooted in the love he had for other people. So Jesus' identity was rooted in his intimate knowledge of God, and his, that knowledge of God produced an agape love for the people that he was called to shepherd. But also, everybody with me? But also, he had a heavenly identity. And where do we see that? Enter Jesus walking on water. The miracle of, the walking, uh, of walking on water is one of the most revealing miracles, I think, in all of the scripture. 
This lake miracle reveals that Jesus was the powerful son of God. And it's interesting, in a book where its theme is the suffering servant, you guys know that's Mark's kind of goal. He's writing to Romans. He's writing to Romans that are about to be or being persecuted by Nero during this time. And his whole point is picturing Jesus as the suffering servant. And even though you are suffering as persecuted Christians, you can keep your head up because Christ went through it also, right? Even in the midst of that, he can't help but say, but look how powerful the Son of God really is, you know? Even in the midst of that, he has to point it out. And in this story, we see Jesus walking out his heavenly identity. When I read this, I think of Paul's letter to the Colossians, in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus was and is the image of the invisible God. I almost picture, like, why was Jesus just walking on water? Was he just doing that because he could? You know what I'm saying? Was he just doing that to say, I am the Son of God. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there was a really beautiful, humble reason Jesus did it. And I just can't imagine, like, what was the reason? But I almost think he was like, it wasn't Jesus proving something, it was Jesus taking his step into his rightful place. I am the ruler over this creation, and I will walk on this water because I created it. Through me, it is here. And this is not me proving anything. This is just me being in my rightful position, <laughs> one that can do the impossible, one that can do something that you can even dream about, one that can walk on water. And even in the midst of that, in the midst of that, his disciples still didn't get who he was. Later on, we see that 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 they admitted in themselves, John Mark at least writing on behalf of Peter, said they admitted in themselves they didn't understand the loaves and the fish. Their hearts were so hardened that they saw the multitude, hap the, the multiplication happen of all this food, they didn't get it. And even in the midst of the Son of God walking on water, someone that they had been with for even a short amount of time, who they thought was the Messiah, they didn't get it and they thought he was a ghost. They thought Jesus was the ghost. But Jesus knew his heavenly identity. Jesus knew that he was walking in his heavenly identity. And it is interesting that you and I also have a heavenly identity. You and I are made to be image bearers of God. We may have a calling or a vocation on this earth. You know, we may have a thing that we do for the rest of our lives. But the reality is our first and primary role here is to be image bearers of God himself. That language, image bearers, comes from the time in the Old Testament when kings would take statues of themselves and put it throughout their kingdom. Just to say, in case you are wondering, this is my realm, this is my kingdom, this is where my will is to be done, and God did that with you. God created you to be his image bearer, to be in his heavenly kingdom here on earth and to say, this is where God's will is to be done. For us to really walk into our true identity, for us to step into who we are called to be and who God intended us to be through the new creation in Christ, excuse me, we have to walk in this identity as an image bearer. We have to realize that our lives here are not just get rich, get the house with a white picket fence and then die. Our 
goal here on earth is to know God, to love people, and to be his image bearers. Throughout this chapter, we see Jesus understand his identity even when other people didn't. Jesus wasn't just the son of Joseph the carpenter. He was the son of the living God. He knew that he wasn't Elijah or one of the prophets. He was the prophet, the shepherd of Israel, the Messiah. He knew that he wasn't John the baptizer, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah, the ultimate expression of the love of God, the self-sacrificing gift to humanity for the justifications of their sins and the renewal of life in the spirit of God in the kingdom of heaven. Temptation number three is I am what others think. Jesus was who his heavenly father said he was. Jesus' identity was firmly rooted in his heavenly father's spoken words over him. The question becomes, so who are you? Who are you tonight? What is your identity rooted in? Is your identity rooted in what you do? Do you live your life? And let's be honest for a second. I know we can really shallowly say, no, I'm great, I'm a, I'm a new creation, I'm perfect, it's great, we're good, you know what I'm saying? Let's not do that tonight. Let's go a level deeper. Do you find your worth in what you do? And if it was taken away from you tomorrow, how would you feel? Do you find your worth in what you have? The house that you have? The possessions? The partner? the looks, and if it was all taken away tomorrow, what would, what would you be? What would you feel? Is your identity rooted in what, others people, what other people think of you? When you walk into a room, is that your first question mark is, what are they thinking about me? How do I look? How's my hair? What's wrong? You know what I'm saying? And if everybody thought terribly of you, what would happen? According to Jesus, we are first supposed to be rooted in our communion and our abiding with God. In case you are wondering, this is the main goal of your Christian life is to know God more and more every single day, to learn what it means to simply be with Jesus. That is your goal, for that is why you've been saved. Jesus saved you to repair the knowing that he intended to happen. I'm not using good English, but you know what I'm saying. According to Jesus, our identity should be rooted in our communion and our abiding with God. According to Jesus, our identity should be rooted in a spiritual calling to love the people around us. According to Jesus, we are to know God more and by his love and as we love him and he loves us, that, that love begins to pour out out of our lives and our love for others is how we measure if we are truly knowing God. Our identity becomes people defined by agape love. Can you honestly say that your identity is someone of agape love? Even the difficult people? Lastly, according to the life of Jesus, we are called to place our identity in being image bearers of the one true God. This takes place through our spiritual callings, through, our, through the vocation that God calls you to. This can take place through anything in life. It can take place through your, your run to the grocery store. It can take place through your stuff at church. It can take place in everything. But you are called to be an image bearer of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, in this heavenly kingdom, even on earth. We are called to serve him, and we're called to root our identity in a life of being an image bearer of Christ. 
the question then becomes how? How can I, maybe you find yourself in one of those temptations, you know, whether you're like half a foot in or you're all in, whatever, right? You find yourself finding your identity in what you do or what you have or what other people think about you. And it's like, okay, Alec, I want to move into my identity being fully rooted in Christ. What do I do? How can I step into that? Like I said earlier, I'm one of those Christians who thinks that a daily abiding with Jesus is the fundamental thing in my life. I know, a quiet time with God on a daily basis? Are you crazy? You legalistic Christian. And I get it. We have come out of a Christian culture that has put emphasis on things to the point where people feel condemned if they mess up. What could probably happen is if someone will maybe, maybe have told you, and maybe you're a victim of this, listen, if you don't do an hour of Bible study every day, you should probably just give up this whole Christian thing. You're pretty much miserable, right? And they don't say it like that, but that's the vibe you get. So the first day you're like 5.30 a.m., you're rocking, like you have no idea what you're reading. You're falling asleep. Oh, you fall asleep. Oh my gosh, God's going to strike me down. That's not abiding with Jesus. That's not what a loving relationship looks like. And I do think that we should be spiritually disciplined to be in a place where we want to do this every day, but not because we think God's going to strike us down, but because our love for God burns so much that we can't help but set apart some time, whether it be five minutes or 15 or 50, you fill in the blank, set apart some time to learn what it means to intentionally abide with Jesus. And as we abide with Jesus, and as you start stepping, and maybe you haven't stepped into that spiritual practice of scripture reading and prayer, whether it be in the morning or night, as you step into that, what you're gonna realize is the good, the bad, and the ugly starts to pile up from inside you and come out in your mind. You start getting distracted, you start thinking about other things, and all of a sudden, like it's almost like a window to your soul has been opened, and all of a sudden, there's a whole mess inside. You experience Christians, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? This is what ends up happening. But I want to encourage us to learn to listen in our communion with God. To learn to listen. Because God may be doing this intentionally. God may be pulling out the good, the bad, and the ugly from our desires to say, all right, it's time to give me this. It's time to take this temptation that you can't get out of your, your mind. It's time to take this thought that you know is not right. It's time to take this self-identity place in the wrong place. And it's time to give it to your heavenly father and learn to walk in the new identity of a child of Jesus Christ. I would really encourage you as you learn to abide with Jesus more and more, learn what it means to listen both to God and what he's pulling out from inside you from the scripture. Does that make sense? Secondly, pray for the courage to be who God has called you to be. A lot of people have this idea of what you're supposed to be. They have this image of, hey, you're supposed to be like this. You're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be this. You're supposed to go to this college. You're supposed to do this thing with your life. You're supposed to whatever. You fill in the blank. None of that really matters at the end of the day. We should listen to good advice. Don't get me wrong. But what matters is what God wants us to be. What matters is, are we living in the person that God has called us to be? And I encourage you to pray for the courage and the humility to walk that out in the way he wants you to. 
And as God shows you who you're going to be, and as, he's, as, he, as he kind of calls you in things that you need to st- take a step of faith in, pray for that courage. I love in Acts where the, the apostles pray for the boldness to do what they were called to do and share the gospel. Do the same. Pray for the courage to be the person that he has created you to be, not what others necessarily expect you to be. The last thing for us to really live in our true identity, the last practical thing is, what if we were people who were willing to step out of our comfort zones? What if we were willing to step out of our comfort zones and step into spiritual callings that God has placed on you and me? The danger, one of the dangers, hear me out here, one of the greatest dangers I think in our Christian context, I mean American Christian context, you hear me say this a lot, you're probably tired of it, I'm sorry. One of the greatest dangers is that we think amening the pastor is the same thing as doing. We think because we can raise our hands, we think we can we come in and say, yeah, that's great, I totally agree with everything that was said, I'm good for the week, that's the same thing as living out our faith. And I say it half jokingly, but oftentimes that's how we, how we live our lives. We live our lives like, I'm doing so good, I went to that teaching, I heard that preaching, and I heard that, and I heard that, and it's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Are you walking in the spiritual calling that God has for each and every one of you? I'm just saying, God has one for you, whether you're living in it or not. God has a purpose, God has a plan. It's not just another program at our church. It's something for you to love other people through, which at the end of the day is the ultimate expression of our faith in Jesus. You wanna know if you're doing well as a Christian, look about how much you love other people. First John says that, not me. Are you stepping out of your comfort zone into your spiritual calling? Are you taking a moment to say, what is my identity? Is my identity really rooted in the the fact that I want to love people through the gifts and callings God has placed on me through the power of the Holy Spirit? Am I doing that? And it's not just for you who come in only on Thursdays and Sundays, it's for everybody. Maybe even if I'm here every day at work, I can be doing this, I can be preaching and still not be walking in my spiritual calling. This is a reality. Are we loving people? My encouragement to us is that we would be people that knew what it meant to commune with God on a deep and personal level. That we would be people that prayed for the courage to be who God has called us to be. And when he called us to it, we stepped out of our comfort zones and walked in the calling he had for our lives. This was the identity of Jesus. And there's nothing like looking at the life of Jesus and being able to mimic that, right? For we are called to be like Christ. So as we Take a moment this week to think and to kind of have inventory on what is my identity rooted in? Is it rooted in the temptations or is it rooted in what God says he wants through the life of Jesus Christ? Let's be willing to be bold and take a step towards our identity being rooted in what God is calling us to live, the new self. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We're thankful for tonight. We're thankful for what you're doing in our lives, God. And we just want to take a moment to thank you for giving us that new identity. The reality is, is that sometimes we're not always walking in that. And it takes, you know, it takes us doing a, uh, an inventory and a realization. And you, the Holy Spirit, just speaking to us and prodding us to go in the direction that you've called us to. 
But God, thank you for this new life, a new life in Christ, an authentic new self, a life that was not defined, is not defined by the things of the past, the, the, the sin and the death that were laid in our, in our pathway, but God, a new life in the spirit, a life in communion with you. As we end tonight, I just really feel strongly to talk about Peter in the Bible for a second. Peter probably is the, one of the best examples of Jesus taking someone's identity and totally reshaping it, but having to do it multiple times. In the beginning, Jesus, Peter was a fisherman, and we see multiple times Peter go back to being a fisherman when great trouble came because he felt that's where his greatest sense of worth, comfort, and um, foundation was at. It's what he could do for himself. And I was just thinking about John 21, 15 through 16. We know this passage, right? This is after Peter has completely denied Jesus three times. Like he had to have been miserable and he saw Jesus die, he never had the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, forgive me, or that's what he thought. Jesus rises again, and even so, he's still fishing because he's like, I can't go back to my master, I've totally abandoned him, there is no going back for me. And Jesus comes and meets Simon Peter where he was at. Even with the new name that Peter had from Simon to Peter, Peter still was struggling with his identity. And, and Jesus comes to him and says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He says it three times. And that three times is so symbolic because what Jesus was doing was he was restoring Peter's identity. Peter, you are not defined by your failure. Peter, you are not defined by the mistakes that you have made. You are defined by my love for you and your love for me. And I am still calling you to something. And I believe that message is for someone in here tonight. Somebody in here thinks that as a Christian, they've made too many mistakes. They've gone too far. They've gone to a place where there is no going back. And I just want to let you know that Jesus wants to restore your identity. He wants to restore your identity as a follower of him, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as someone who can live fully in the new self that God has created for you. And he's asking you the question, do you love me? What's your answer? There are gonna be some people up here in the front, some of the follow-up team, and I just really wanna encourage you, like, if that's you tonight, if you're the person that, that is struggling, that feels like they've failed God, that feels like they've gone too far, that feels like there's no going back, but you hear Jesus tonight saying, do you love me? First of all, say I love you back. And then come to the front and receive prayer. There's nothing like the body of Christ being there to encourage and say, yeah, guess what? We've all made mistakes. Come back to the loving grace of our Father. I think that's God's question to us tonight. Do you love me? What's our answer? So as we spend some time in worship and as we pray and as you as yourselves take some time to think about what you have read and heard tonight, I just encourage you, if that's you tonight, come forward and get prayer. We wanna pray for you. Father, we love you. 
We're thankful for tonight. We're thankful for what you're doing in our lives. We're thankful for the new life, the new creation we are. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.